As you have a seat, I hope you'll open up your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 26, because that's where we're going to begin this morning, Acts chapter 26. Now, I don't know if it feels to you like we've been going slow or we've been going fast through the book of Acts, but I stand back and I realize here that this is the third message that we've done from Acts chapter 26. And it's not like I've been trying to deliberately go slow, but there's so much in this text that I think we need to grab a hold of and allow to sink into us. Well, I think it merits this third week because now we pick it up in the midst of Acts chapter 26, where Paul is at a hearing. It's a trial. It's it's a discovery. They're trying to get evidence or write up a paper before he's forwarded on to Caesar for a special appearance before what you might call the Supreme Court of the Roman Empire, which just happened to be Caesar himself. But it's quite a situation. I want you to envision yourself a room. I don't know how big the room was. It was something like this. The text of the book of Acts calls it an auditorium. And in that auditorium, there's a lot of people there. And it's not just the number of people that are in the auditorium, but it's important people. Of course, you've got the the commanders of the Roman legions. They're mentioned as being there. You've got all the prominent men of of, uh, Caesarea. And no doubt the the women they were with them, just all the important people of the region are right there in that auditorium. But the most important people are right up front and sitting on the platform. And there may have been many dignitaries on the platform, but we know especially of these three. We know that there was a man named Festus there. And Festus was the governor of the Roman province of Judea. And then there was another man there named Agrippa. And Agrippa was a king of sort of a sub-kingdom. It gets sort of complicated. But he was a king in subjugation to the Roman Empire. But nevertheless, he was royalty. And there was Agrippa's wife or consort or whatever you call him, his sister that he had this incestuous relationship with, Bernice. She was all up there. All three of them were up there on the platform as well as probably other dignitaries. So there they gather. And Paul has been making his defense. Paul has been arguing forth for for why he does what he does, why he got himself into trouble for spreading this message of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do all over the Roman Empire. And as Paul delivers this message, he was was arrested, there was a big riot, and now he finds himself in Roman custody and has been so in Roman custody for the last two years. But now in this trial, he's explaining his story and he explains the amazing encounter he had with the risen Jesus when he was on his way to the city of Damascus to go and persecute those people who were already believers. Well, he's been discussing this. He's been explaining this before Agrippa in the midst of that auditorium. But now, starting at verse 19, he's going to say his reaction to this heavenly vision that he had. So are you ready for this? Do you have the picture in your mind? There's a guy with a crown on a platform. There's a governor beside him. And in front of him is Paul, the man in chains. I won't say he was in rags, but he was in humble clothes at the very least. And there's chains on his wrists. And now he's going to tell Agrippa his response to the heavenly vision. Here we go. Verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. In other words, Paul explains to Agrippa 
When I had this remarkable experience of a light shining brighter than the midday sun and a heavenly voice telling me that Jesus was alive and that he was the one I was really persecuting and that he had a purpose and a mission for my life, King Agrippa, I didn't ignore that. By the way, can we agree that that's completely logical? When God breaks through and speaks to you so powerfully and so directly, you know, I was going to say the stupidest thing. I don't know if that sounds so nice. But I'll just say it, the stupidest thing in the world you can do is ignore it. It's just act like it doesn't matter. You should obey it. God speaks, you should respond. And that's exactly what Paul says. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. God interrupted my life and I responded to it. And the purpose he gave for me to perform, I dedicated my life to do it. To go and to preach repentance, to tell people that they should turn to God, specifically to who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And I told people all around, I told Jewish people this, I told Gentile people this. And I love how he describes it there in verse 20. Did you notice this? He describes what turning to God is like. He says that they should repent, that's one aspect. That they should turn to God, that's another aspect. And that they should do works befitting repentance. It's really kind of all three. To turn to God, well, means to turn to God, to put your focus, your attention towards him. To repent means to sort of twist, to go in a different direction. So it's turning away from sin and away from self and turning towards God, but then finally making it evident in your life. To do works that befit repentance. To show I've really repented. It's not just a change in my mind, it's a change in my actions. So Paul says, this is what I'm doing. I was not disobedient. I dedicated my life to the purpose that God gave for me to do. And Paul now says in verse 21, and this is what got me into trouble. This is why I was arrested. This is why I've been in Roman custody for the last two years. And this is why I appear before your court here, King Agrippa. Notice these words, verse 21. He says, for these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing to both small and great, saying that no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and that would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, what's interesting about this is if you remember this whole situation, Paul had actually done no wrong. Paul was imprisoned. He, he, was, he was in custody for trumped up charges. He had done nothing wrong. Yet nevertheless, there he was in custody and it was a fair question. Well, why? If he didn't do anything wrong, why are you in jail? By the way, I bet if you go to our, you know, county jail here, you'll find all kinds of guys who never did anything wrong, yet they're in jail, right? <laughs> Doesn't just about everybody in custody have that story. I just, well, isn't that funny? I just ended up here. Well, Paul's case, it was true. Then why are you? Well, what is it? He goes, I'll tell you why I am here. Because I was seized by religious leaders who didn't like what I was doing. Maybe it was out of envy. Maybe it was out of misguided zeal. Maybe it was out of some other cause. But for whatever reason, they seized me and they put me because I wouldn't stop preaching this message. And I love how he says it in verse 22. It's sort of a surprising statement. Did you notice in verse 22? He says, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing to both small and great. Now, you know what I find interesting about that? Paul plainly said, God is helping me, having obtained help from God. That phrase strikes me funny. Do you know why? Because he's a prisoner. There's chains on his wrist. For the last two years, he's been held in what would you call it? I don't know, house arrest, Roman custody. He hasn't been a free man. And if this trial turns badly, it could be off with his head. 
And yet what do you say? Yeah, God helps me. Why doesn't he help you get out of this mess? Because, listen, Paul's greatest concern in life was not his freedom. Paul's greatest concern in life was not his personal comfort. Paul's greatest concern in life was that he would fulfill the purpose that God had for him to perform. And part of that purpose was for him to present the message of Jesus before kings, to send it before governors, to present it before all people. And if those chains gave him the opportunity, then it was a help from God to him for him to be in those chains. I just find this remarkable. I find it to be honestly somewhat of a rebuke to me. Because in my life, all too often, I find that the greatest purpose of my life is to have everything easy. The greatest purpose in my life is to have things comfortable. And if God's going to help me, help me to be more comfortable. I would much rather have at the heart of the Apostle Paul where he said, no, if God's going to help me, help me to fulfill your purpose for my life. And if it means change, if it means seasons of discomfort, then I'll bear it, Lord, and I'll bear it gladly. It all seems to have been just fine with Paul. He was more interested in telling people about Jesus than he was in his own personal freedom. But, but back to the point in verse 22, he says, listen, all I'm saying are the things which those and the prophets and Moses said would come. You know this, King Agrippa. You know what the Old Testament scriptures say. You know that this is just in fulfillment of what was promised before. Verse 23, that the Christ would suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead and that he would proclaim the light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, I believe as this scene plays out in my mind, I hope the movie's running in your head as well. You can just envision Paul there, can't you? There he is, Paul the prisoner, dressed in his humble clothes. Paul the prisoner with chains on his wrists. Paul speaking to a king. And he's saying very directly, you know these things. You know that Jesus suffered. You know that Jesus was the Messiah. You know that he rose from the dead. You know that he's given me this commission, this this purpose to go and to preach the word about. This is what I'm doing. So, verse 24. Paul really boring in on the point. He's really getting into the, to Agrippa, bringing it to You know these things, Agrippa. Now what will you do in light of them? And I just see the tension in the room rising and rising and rising until it, it just gets uncomfortable in a room, doesn't it? It gets uncomfortable sometimes when somebody's presenting the truth of God. So much so that Festus, the governor there, felt like he had to break it. Verse 24, he says, now as he made the, excuse, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. I just see it the way the tension sort of rises in the room until Festus can't take it anymore. Paul, you're nuts. You got all this learning. You're obviously an intelligent man, but you're crazy at the same time. I find this fascinating statement. Paul was obviously an intelligent man. He was a man of much learning. Yet with all of that, Festus thought he was a crazy, he was a crazy man. So much so that he was willing to interrupt the message that he gave and say, Paul, you're crazy. I'm going to stop these proceedings now. But you know, when I think about it, If I try to get inside the mind of a man like Festus, he would think that there were good reasons to say that Paul was crazy. Why might Festus think that Paul was crazy? Well, listen, Paul was a prisoner in chains, and yet he said he was happy. That's crazy talk. Secondly, Paul insisted that God could raise the dead. To a man like Festus, that's crazy talk. Number three, 
He experienced a heavenly vision and he changed his life because of it. In Festus' mind, only crazy people do that. Number four, he was more concerned about proclaiming Jesus than he was about his own personal freedom or comfort. That seemed crazy to Festus. Finally, he believed in a message of hope and redemption for all humanity, not only for the Jews or only for the Gentiles. And to Festus, that sounded just plain crazy. You know what? It was all the truth of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the message of Jesus, of who he is and what he came to do for us, the message of Jesus, when it's properly presented and lived, will make some people think that we're crazy. Look, I'm not trying to deny that there aren't some Christians out there who genuinely are crazy. And if you're here with us this morning, welcome. I don't know if I should say I hope you feel at home or not, but just welcome. Yes, I know, there generally are some Christians, and they're just like, well, they're just, I don't know. Nevertheless, I do know that from an outsider's perspective, living a life full on as a follower of Jesus Christ will seem to others to be madness. How can you do that? How can you think these things? That's exactly what Festus saw. He looked at Paul and he said, you're educated, I can tell it, but you, you must have learned too much. It's making you mad. You're a crazy man. And what did Paul say in reply? I love this right there at verse 25. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Now, that's what he said to Festus. Now he turns his attention towards Agrippa. Remember, it's both of them up on the platform, right? Now he turns his attention to Agrippa and he says, For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. I want you to consider two things. First, I want you to consider what Paul said to Festus. Paul said to Festus plainly, I'm not mad, but I speak the words of truth and reason. Paul knew that not only his message was true, it was reasonable. Now, I'll fully allow that sometimes God works above our reason. Sometimes you may say that God works beyond our reason. But make no mistake about it, Christianity is, at its core, a reasonable faith. We do not ask people, when they put their trust in Jesus, to make some blind leap of faith into a great unknown darkness and just hope that God will catch you. No, we tell you to make a very intelligent, reasoned step of faith based on evidence, based on truth. Oh, it's a step of faith, but it's not a blind leap into the darkness. It's a well-instructed, well-guided step of faith based on things that we can truly evaluate, based on things that are true. Ladies and gentlemen, it's true that Jesus of Nazareth really walked this earth and taught what he taught and did what he did. It's true that he really did die on a cross as a substitute, as a penalty for our sins, not his own. It's true that he really rose from the dead and his resurrection is proof that God the Father received his sacrifice and therefore we can find forgiveness of our sins because of who Jesus is and what he did for us. Can I just simply tell you, it's true. And it's not my truth. Well, it is my truth in the sense that I believe it. But it's not my truth in the sense that many people mean, well, I have my truth and you have your truth and they have their truth and everybody has their own truth. 
No, if I could use a phrase, this is true truth. It's real truth. It's the kind of truth that's true whether or not you agree with it. It's actually true. It really happened. And can I just give you a very simple encouragement today? That even as Paul stood before these esteemed men, this king and this governor and and the king's wife, and even as he spoke to them and and challenged them, we're going to see them in just a few moments, he challenged them to, to put their trust in who Jesus is and what he did for them. I want to challenge you today. You should do it as well. Why? Because it's true. And you as a rational human being, you have a responsibility to live your life and to focus your life on the things that are true. If this whole Jesus story, if I could use that phrase, I feel a little uncomfortable, it feels like it trivializes it, but I think you know what I mean. If this whole Jesus story is true, then I think that you are honor-bound to live your life for Jesus Christ. If it's not true, well, then I would want to know that. I only want to follow this thing because it's true. But if it is true, you should do it just because it's true. One of the great problems in our world today is people think that everything has to be done on the basis of feelings. Well, should I give my life to Jesus or not? Well, do I feel like it? Do I not feel like it? Well, if I feel like it, then I'll do it. If I don't feel like it, you know, can I just say I, I hope you feel like it. But if you don't, even if you don't feel like it, it's still true. Your feelings or lack thereof don't make it any less true. So do what's right. Do what's true. That's what Paul was telling him when he said there in verse 29, but I speak the words of truth and reason. But after speaking to Festus, then he looked at Agrippa with laser-like eyes and he focused in on him and he said, Agrippa, for the king, you know these things. None of these things escape his attention. You know the story of Jesus, Agrippa. Oh, Festus, he just got off the boat from Rome. He doesn't know much about what's been going on here. It may very well be that Festus didn't even know the name of Jesus of Nazareth until a few weeks before. Oh, but Agrippa, you know. Agrippa, you know the Old Testament scriptures. Agrippa, you know the words of the prophet. Agrippa, you've heard of John the Baptist. Your your own relatives killed him. Agrippa, you know these things. You I'm speaking to. And he repealed to truth and reason as he did it saying that these things were not done in a corner. Then, if the tension couldn't get any greater in the room, do you see what he says in verse 29? Oh, I wish I could have been there. You know, you have these time machine moments, you know, things you wish you could see. I wish I could see this. Verse 27, Paul's continuing to speak to Agrippa, looking at him square in the eye. Uh, There's a lot of people in the room, but Paul knows, look, if I reach Agrippa, I've reached everybody. So I'm just going to speak as if I'm speaking directly to Agrippa, as if there's nobody else in the room. It's me and the king. I'm the prisoner. He's the king, but I'm going to speak to him. And this is what he says. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Paul was brilliant here in verse 27. You see, Paul used Festus's outburst to appeal to what King Agrippa already knew. He brought the challenge directly to him, asking him, do you believe? And I find it fascinating that he first didn't ask him if he believed on Jesus. He asked him, do you believe the prophets? Because if Agrippa truly believed the prophets, it would lead him to believing in Jesus. And says, I don't even have to ask you if you believe in Jesus. I know that if you believe the prophets, you can connect the dots and you know that you'll have to put your trust in Jesus. Do you believe? I find it fascinating that here Paul brought Agrippa to a place of decision. 
Agrippa, I'm asking you flat out, man to man, I know that I'm a prisoner and you're a king, but I don't fear to ask you this question. Do you believe? And ladies and gentlemen, I know that, that some people don't like this in church meetings, but it's a legitimate thing to do. It's a legitimate thing for the preacher. I'm not saying that it has to happen every week, but at least it should happen sometimes that the preacher looks at his audience and he calls them to make a decision. Are you going to decide for Jesus or against him? I'm calling you to faith in Jesus Christ right here today, right here, right now, just as Paul did for Agrippa. Now, there's some people who don't like that. There are some people who don't like it because it makes people feel uncomfortable. You know, I'll admit, I sympathize with that. I would much rather have you feel comfortable than uncomfortable. The whole purpose isn't, well, let's torture you for a little bit and make you feel all awkward and uncomfortable. That's not the idea. That's not the purpose. It may be a byproduct, because that's not the goal. But ladies and gentlemen, if this is true, if Jesus really is who he said he was, if he did really what the Bible says he did, if it means what the Bible really says it means, then it means everything. And it's entirely fair and appropriate to make the question pointed, to look at you square in the face and say, do you believe this? I challenge you to make a decision to believe. Now, I know many, many people, they would say, listen, I don't want to be boxed into a corner. I don't want to be painted in this place where i got to make a decision one way or another. This is what I'll do. I just won't decide. You know, from my very youngest years as a follower of Jesus, I, I came to Christ as a young teenager and the man who first brought this message to me was a man who's still serving God. I, I pray that in my years I could serve God one-tenth as effectively as he has over the years. A man named Greg Laurie. Now, never forget something I heard him say. It, it, it was when I was younger and he was younger. He said this. He said, to be undecided is to be decided. And it's true. You can say, well, I won't make a decision for Jesus. I won't say for him or against him. Ladies and gentlemen, to be undecided is to be decided. And that's exactly why Paul was pressing the point home. Look at it again. It's right there in verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And look at Agrippa's response here in verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Wow. Almost. You see, when Paul called Agrippa to faith and the prophets in in Jesus, Agrippa refused to believe and to say that he believed. Paul almost persuaded him. The literal idea behind that word almost means in a little. And it's interesting because it could mean two things. It could mean in a little bit of time you'll persuade me to be a Christian. In other words, Paul, if I let you keep talking, you're going to win me over. Or it could mean I'm this close, but I'm coming no closer. But the bottom line is this. No matter how you understand that word, it's true. Almost isn't there. Almost isn't enough. And Agrippa's reply is especially sorry. Of course, almost being a Christian means that you almost have your sins forgiven. It means that you almost have eternal life. It means that you almost will be delivered in the judgment to come. And in all of this sense, almost isn't enough. Now, I know there's people who admire Agrippa and go, wow, look, he was almost there. Well, friends, don't come almost there. Don't, don't almost pull the cord on the parachute. 
You know, don't almost grab onto the branch before you go over to the waterfall. Hey, almost grabbed it. Good for him. It's not good enough. No, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Previously, and we looked at this last week, Paul described what becoming a Christian was like. He described it in these terms, to turn from darkness to light, from turning from the power of Satan to the power of God, to receive the forgiveness of sins, to find a place among God's people, to to become one of those who set apart by faith in Jesus Christ. If you apply almost to all of those, well, then why am I almost turning from darkness to light? Because I don't want it. I don't want to turn from darkness to light. I don't want to turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. I don't want to receive forgiveness of my sins. And that almost persuading isn't quite enough. You might ask yourself a question, why? Agrippa, why didn't you just do it? Why, Agrippa? And I think this is a very important question. Because haven't you asked this question to yourself before? I've asked this question. If Christianity is so true, if Christianity is so right, why doesn't everybody believe it? Why do so many people reject it if it's so true, if it's so right? Well, I'll tell you, I can tell you why Agrippa rejected it. And I know I'm psychoanalyzing a little bit. I know I'm playing out the text a little bit. I'm the preacher. It's my right. I can do this. Okay, think of the scene. You have Agrippa. You have Festus. You have Agrippa's wife, Bernice. And you have Paul right in front of him. Agrippa, why are you almost persuaded Well, look on his left. There's Bernice, his sister, who was his immoral wife. And to tell you the truth, I can't remember whether or not they were legally married, but it was an immoral relationship. It was wrong. It was incestuous. It was just, look, I don't want, it was just filthy. It was wrong. Agrippa knows this. If I accept what Paul says, I have to give this up. I got to turn my back on sin and immorality. i got to say, no, my life is going to be different. I've got to live my life different if I receive what Paul says. No, I'm not going to do it. Then turn to your right. Who's there on his right? Festus is there. And what do we know about Festus? Festus is a man's man. He's a no-nonsense man. He's a man who gets things done, and he's a man who thought Paul was crazy. Well, I don't want to just... If I agree with Paul, then Festus is going to think I'm crazy. I can't stand to be seen less in the eyes of my peers. No, no, no. I mean, I am a dignified man. I'm a king. I I don't want to to lose the praise of men. So I'm not going to agree with what Paul says. I'll be almost a Christian. So there on the left, you got Bernice. On the right, you got Festus. And who's right in front of Agrippa? It's Paul himself. And what's around Paul's wrists? It's those shackles. It's those chains. And Festus knows, excuse me, Agrippa knows this. If I agree with Paul, I associate myself with him. And isn't it shameful for me to associate myself with a prisoner? After all, I'm a king. I can't associate myself with a man in chains. It's also embarrassing. I'm an important person. And because of the people on his left, on his right, right in front of him, he says, no, I'm going to be almost but not fully persuaded. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no other words to describe that other than just to say it's a tragedy. Because at the end of the day, Agrippa stands before God alone with his accountability to have to answer for his sins. And Festus won't be there on that day. And Bernice won't be there on the day. And Paul won't even be there on that day, not to judge him. 
but it'll be him and God alone. I just think it's tragic. How many people turn their back on God out of the fear of the men and women that surround them in their life? Or instead they should say, no, it's true, it's right, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Well, look at Paul's response. If the drama could possibly be increased at all, get your mind into verse 29. Do you see it here? And Paul said, well, you know what? I'm going to start reading back from verse 27 just because I like it so much. (laughs) King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me might be both become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. You better believe I'm trying to make you a Christian, Agrippa. And I want not only you, but I want everybody in this auditorium, all the commanders, all the prominent men, you, Governor Festus, you, Bernice, I want you to be just as I am as a follower of Jesus, except, you know, it would be nice to be free from these chains. Thank you very much. Without apology, Paul said, no, I want for you the same good things that I have received from God. And with this dramatic gesture, Paul showed that even though he was in chains, he had more freedom in Jesus than anybody else in that room. Agrippa, you're the one in bondage. Festus, you're the one. You you live in bondage to the fears and the opinions of men. I have these chains, but I'm free. That's why I call you decision today. I call you to decisions so that you can find true freedom in Jesus and you live with the opinions of men and women around you like shackles on your wrist. I call you today to do what's right before God, to do what Paul said, to turn from sin and self, to turn towards the God who loved you and paid for your sins and to say, no, I'm going to live my life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And when Paul said that, That was too much for Agrippa. Do you see what Agrippa does? Verse 30. When he said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. Do you see what he's saying? It was too intense. Agrippa says, game over. Sorry, Paul, we're done. I can't let you keep talking. I can't let you keep making sense. I can't let the the Holy Spirit of God continue to speak to my heart. Game over. We're done. Check, please. I'm out of here. And he stands up and he says, no, this is finished. How sad. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope it's not finished for you. In just a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer and I'm going to invite people here across this room. I'm going to invite you to make a decision. I just want you to know, we don't do this every Sunday. I, I, I like to do it often. But, but I don't make a law or a ritual about doing it every Sunday. But I think I would be guilty of dereliction of duty as a preacher if I left this text without asking you to make a decision. And so we'll do that just in a moment. But, but look at what they said after Paul was like, did they despise Paul? Did they think him low? No, they honored him. Look at here, starting at verse 31. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or change. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. 
You see, this is what you're afraid of. You're afraid that if you decide to live your life for Jesus Christ, other people will despise you. And there may be people who will. But more likely, they're going to respect you. They respected Paul even though they rejected his message. Well, don't, don't reject the message. Here Jesus speaks out to you and says, here I am. I'm ready to forgive your sins. I'm ready to give you new life. I'm ready, but you have to come to me and you have to put your trust in me. Do you believe? I know that you do believe, Paul said to Agrippa. And I pray that many people here believe this morning. I'm going to pray a prayer. And when I pray, I'm going to pause in the midst of my prayer and I'm going to give people all across this room an invitation, an opportunity to pray their own prayer of surrender and life dedication to God, to ask Jesus to fill your life and to put your trust in him. I pray that many people here this morning will do it. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you that your word is real, that it speaks with power and truth across the centuries. Lord, I just think it's crazy that here we are, we're studying this book that's 2,000 years old. Yet it rings more true to our hearts than the morning newspaper. Because these aren't just the words of men, they're the words of the living God. So, Father, I pray that you would speak all across this room to people who before, Lord, maybe there's many people here, they've almost been persuaded. They've almost given their life to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that today wouldn't be an almost day, but it would be a yes day, a full acceptance day. So do it, Lord, in their lives. So, Jesus, I pray that you would. You pour out your spirit upon many people right here, right now. Now, while eyes are closed and heads are reverently bowed in prayer, I simply want to invite you, if you want to put your trust in Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer, and you just pray it after me. I'll say the words, and you can just repeat them. But can I say, you need to say these words. Not just think them. Even if you say them in a low whisper, say them and God will hear you. If you want to put your trust in Jesus, if you want to go beyond almost, pray this prayer with me now. Jesus in heaven, I come to you and I ask that you forgive my sins. I believe what you did on the cross pays for my sins. And I believe that I can have the new life you had when you rose from the dead. I want it. I need it. So I want to turn from my own life. I want to live the life you have for me. I want you to fill my life. And I want to live each day for you. Lord, I don't even know what that means. But I pray that you'll show me. And I pray that you'll forgive me. I give my life to you. I put my trust in who Jesus is and what he did for me. In Jesus' name, amen.